Good morning, everybody. Morning. Trying a new pulpit today. See how it works. It's just a table. Our maker, our redeemer, our friend. That's an that's amazing statement that God would be our friend, that Jesus would look upon us and call us friends. And I imagine Palm Sunday, him getting up on this donkey and riding in. You've got to just sit and imagine what he's thinking, you know? I think he knows what's going to happen. These people are stoked to see him, laying down the palm branches and so forth. It won't be long before the same people are mocking and spitting and scoffing. And he calls us friend. It's an amazing Jesus. Think about his motives coming into town, knowing what's going to take place. And it has to be bound up deeply with his intention to give us life. Genuine, true life. He came to give us life, not not the next best thing kind of life that offers this sort of fleeting glimpse into a pleasure here or some peacefulness now and again. That's what the world sort of offers us, a pseudo-peace, fleeting pleasure. Jesus offers us an abundant, rich, eternal, everlasting, indestructible kind of life. That, that kind of life that is so profound to us. And someone, someone might ask, well, which kind of life do you prefer? The sort of fleeting, myopic, what's the point life? Or this other one? <laughs> and, and we're quick to say, boy, the other one. I want the one Jesus has to offer. But then Jesus tells us what that life is all about. And, and we kind of say, huh, that's, but... Ah, wait now, what? It sounds so wonderful and it's great, but it doesn't fit with what we understand life to be. I think think about Jesus sometimes as he offers this amazing gift and we're quick to accept it. We say, yeah, that sounds great. But then when we kind of peel back the layers a little bit and see what he's calling us to, Some of us balk and run, some of us fight and say this can't be, and some of us just are drawn even deeper and and we're interested. I I liken this maybe to an old German man from Monroe, Wisconsin, with a brick of cheese. I'm from Wisconsin, so that makes sense to me. Limburger cheese, and he might say to you, boy, this is a fantastic kind of cheese. It's better than that craft cheese made out of vegetable oil with yellow food coloring. This is awesome. And you say, I would prefer awesome cheese versus craft vegetable oil cheese. Okay. And so he hands it to you. My great-grandfather, he used to eat Limburger cheese, a half-pound block on a mound of cottage cheese drizzled in honey. That's a good Wisconsin diet right there. He loved this kind of cheese. Now, if you've ever had it, you, 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 you say, yes, I prefer the better real milk, grass-fed, cow, you know, whatever. And then you open it up, and you're like, this does not fit with what I understand good things to be. It smells awful. And you peel back the little layer of uh, wax. It's not wax, some kind of paper around it, and it just reeks. And, and Grandpa says, yeah, that's the bacteria smear. Like, oh, good, okay. That's what I want in my cheese. You know, so my point is, sometimes that's how I think Jesus' way of life 
feels to us. And we're going to read a story in Mark chapter 7 today where there's a lot of people that are really stoked about what Jesus is doing. There's crowds forming. He's saying and doing something that's very interesting and it's attractive. And yet to some who might be drawn to it, it's just so abrasive. It just doesn't fit with what they understand loving God to entail. They've been, they've been honing in on a way of loving God for a very long time. And Jesus comes in and he kind of blows that up. And he, and he reframes for them what loving God looks like. And it's very, very unexpected. My hope this morning is that you will see something deep in this passage. We're going to read a familiar passage, and oftentimes if you, if you read it quickly and kind of keep rolling, it can come across as a passage that says, hey, don't be legalistic, just be heartfelt and you're good. I'm like, all right, sweet. Or Jesus, Jesus's grace is better than, than religion or something like that. It's not so myopic. And I want to spend some time today because what he does here will, will move into the next few stories as well. Uh, after Easter, we'll pick up the Mark narrative again and we'll be with the Syrophoenician woman. Some of you know that story. And it's a big statement about clean and unclean, following the law, not following, etc. So I want to spend some time today uh, with some history. So we can actually not read this passage in Mark chapter 7 and just hear something like, hey, don't be legalistic. It's far more profound than that. We've seen the way that Mark uh, writes. And one of the themes we've seen so far is this, this robust uh, sort of the end that God has talked about with you is here. We know that because of Jesus. So it's, it's more than just religion versus Jesus or something like that, okay? I hope that you will see this deeper meaning. So turn with me to Mark chapter 7, and I'm going to read the first first part of it. We'll read it in a few different chunks and then work through it. Mark chapter 7, uh, we'll read the first eight verses here. Now the Pharisees and some of the experts in the law, or the, the scribes, your Bible probably says, uh, who come from Jerusalem, they all gathered around Jesus. They have something to talk about. And they saw that some of Jesus' followers ate with unclean hands. They ate their bread with unclean hands or unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they performed a ritual washing, holding fast to the tradition of their elders. Pause for a second. This is clearly not just, man, your hands are dirty, you should clean before you eat. That's good hygiene. This is different. This is a ritual kind of washing, a religious washing, and it was really, really important. It might not end up being that clean in terms of you did it in a certain way, you, you used about one and a half eggshells, if you could fill them with water, just a little bit of water drizzled on your hand, you'd make a fist and hold your hands upright and do that and that, and wash down to the wrist. Something that you did to stay ceremonially pure. And that's what a good Jewish person is always, always doing, they say. And so Jesus, what in the world, man? Why aren't you making yourself pure if you say you love God and you have disciples following your lead, notice they're talking to Jesus. 
He said, your guys are not washing the way they should according to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. They hold fast to many other traditions. The washing of the cups and the pots and the kettles. This is Mark's little parentheses saying, look, here's what's going on within Judaism in Jesus' day. They're doing lots of these kinds of things, different washings and so forth. And Jesus and his disciples weren't following him. Says some of his disciples, maybe some were. And so Mark has given us a cue. We know from that kind of parentheses that he is probably not writing to Jewish people if he has to explain Jewish customs, yeah? He's probably writing to Gentiles, most of whom are like you and me. Verse five, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, they asked him, he said, why do your disciples live, not live according to the tradition of the elders? But they eat with these unwashed hands. And he said to them, Jesus looks right at them. I love Jesus. He says to them, Isaiah talked about you kind of guys. He prophesied correctly about you people. When he said, and this is written in Isaiah 29, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. And having no regard for the command of God, you're holding fast to human tradition. So Jesus brings a really scathing critique against the way that they're living as they come up and they, in their question, are bringing a scathing critique against Jesus. Now it's interesting, and here's the place that I wanna try to delve into some history. Uh, I recently had the opportunity in my academic studies to, to do my last, my most recent class in Israel. So could you pop up a few pictures here, uh, Steve? This is a mikvah. Uh, this is right off the Dead Sea. This is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found and one of the sects of Judaism, the Essenes, we believe, lived here. How do we know it's a Jewish ruins as opposed to just ancient ruins from anybody? Well, because of this mikvah. Uh, you can see the steps going down. They go down a little bit further. Notice, I, I put this one up. You see at the top of the steps, those little lines? There's two of them, and they kind of form rows. Those would have gone all the way down into the water and back so that when you were going down for your ceremonial cleansing, you could stay in the rows and then you would make sure to never touch the people next to you because just touching even your fellow Jewish man might render you unclean. So they had that. Go to the next one. Here's another mikvah, same area. Notice how big this one is. There's different places. Some believe that John the Baptist might have lived with this crew. You can roll to the next one. This one, I'll show you a mikvah in a second. There's one of the stone jars. This is sitting right off the shore of the Sea of Galilee in Magdala, where Mary Magdalene was from. They had these bowls for ceremonial cleansing. The ruins around Israel that are definitely Jewish always have lots and lots and lots of stuff from the first century uh, for washing, ceremonial washing. Go one more. I like the one here in Magdala better. See the little uh, opening there? Uh, and then there's another opening, and there's this whole aqueduct system bringing fresh water in and flowing out. 
They didn't have that by the Dead Sea, which makes you wonder what that water was like after a season of washing. But here, at least, it was moving. That's good on the picture, Steve. So washing was so crucially important. How did it get to be that way? Why was this such a crucial piece? Well, you kind of have to go back, all the way back to the Ezra and Nehemiah days, okay? And you think about the Israel people, God's people Israel had been exiled, totally stomped and taken out of their homeland and have lived in exile for a very long time. And then Ezra and Nehemiah come along, we read that God stirs King Cyrus's heart and thus begins this mass return of Israel back to its homeland. It's hard for us to know what that would feel like to lose our homeland, to be enslaved and brought into submission under a pagan king, and then to be given the freedom to return home. Well, they're very excited to return home. You've been down and out and pretty messed up for a very long time, and now you get to come back and you get to start rebuilding. Well, there's a big question that comes up. Who are we to become? And the idea of a remnant really starts to solidify in their minds. This is a somewhat mysterious sort of group of people that would be preserved through catastrophe for the final days. This is the idea of a remnant. This is in the prophetic writings, the idea of one of God's people groups becoming a remnant or like a seed until the end of days was was a very prominent biblical theme. And for the first time, a group of people started to apply that to themselves. We are that remnant. We're the remnant that God has held through the exile. Now he's brought us back. And so we are the seed of restoration. We need to restore the community. This this gola is the word, or this sort of exile redemption tribe. Start to view themselves this way. We will go and we will bring renewal. I think that prophetic echo is resounding in their minds. The prophets had promised a future that would be pure and holy and good and with God, and that God would be reigning. And the most noteworthy characteristic of this future, and therefore these people, was that it would be free from sin and brokenness and uncleanliness. God would purify it. So the reigning characteristic that these folks started to get into their heads was, we must be separate from the Haaretz, or the people of the land, the Gentile, the people who aren't of God. So, by identity gets crushed as I'm brought into exile, and now as I'm returning into the homeland, I need to reform my identity, and it begins with, I'm a remnant, I'm here to bring purity to God's people, and I'm here to separate, hardcore separate from the rest of the people of the world. So this starts to frame the way that they are. They are driven by what? Some sort of power mongering? No. They're driven by a zeal for God. They love God. They want to do right by God. Paul will later say these people had zeal, but they didn't have the knowledge. So they're driven by zeal for God, and I think that in some ways, 
That zeal, that drive to become pure is something that we as Christians can share. We desire to be holy and pure, and this is a very good thing. But I think here comes a key for us to help us understand the context in Mark's gospel. Because we might say, well, geez, I'm kind of there as well. The goal of this community was to become Israel as they had remembered it from the past. Their sacred texts, the prophetic literature, the ways that they had understood things, and Israel according to the traditions of their elders. There's two major things that are working to define them. Their ancient sacred text and the traditions of their people brought through through the elders. So pay very close attention here. They had experienced a long time where everything they had once identified with has become wrecked. And now they have a deep desire to regain that identity that was lost. They want to take that identity back. It feels like it's been stolen. So there's a strong, strong focus that they have. Notice their hearts are actually, though it's a zeal for God and wanting purity, much of what they start to do is really wanting to reclaim that identity. Their hearts are actually close to themselves. They had a huge ambition to regain what was lost. And it carried on for hundreds of years. So even in Ezra, you'll see how they want to separate from the rest of the world, and then they start to intermix, and it gets messed up, and then they they repent and change, and they throw the, the impure people out of their community. And then they go on again, and they'll reconnect with in unclean or un, impure, and then they'll throw them out. So we see a, several hundred years now leading up to Jesus' time where there's this deep desire to continue purifying, and yet it's never quite working. And so they're working at it. They're working at it. They're working at it. It's a community that gets characterized by rigorous observance of the law, and it becomes a sort of boundary marker. This is how you're in the community or how you're not. And they begin to see themselves less as an eternal nation following God, and they start to see them more, themselves more, as a purified people following Torah. I'll say that again. They see themselves less as this nation chosen by God to glorify and follow God. And they start to see themselves more as a purified people group, if you will, following Torah. Now, you, I can hear immediately, man, what in the world? Those are, very, those are the same thing. I don't think they actually are the same thing. I think they're very similar. Yet if you really think about it, the one orients your heart and mind toward God and his activity. The other points your heart and mind toward yourself and your purity and your systems and practices that separate you from the unclean people of the world. That's their context. God followers says we belong to God and we look to him for ongoing leadership. Torah followers says we belong to the Torah and our connectedness to God depends upon our own rigorous observance within that system. God can do his thing with us insofar as we are 
following the system. Now, we're getting into some really thin ice and we're on some fine ropes here. I understand that. But we're starting to see, I want you to start to see the orientation of your heart. Remember that passage from Isaiah, their hearts are far from me, but they're honoring me with their lips. There's something that they really think they're doing well, and Jesus is going to say they're not doing that well. And that's, we really want to pay attention to that. To the group of true Torah followers, rebuilding the temple then becomes very indispensable. To follow Torah, you've got to have this temple. And so, the temple becomes very prominent. They need to rebuild it. The high priest becomes very, very prominent at this time. And the scribes, or I shouldn't get, I'm not quite there yet. Um, a group of people start to say, man, these, these laws that were given to priests, because we're a, a, a holy priesthood as a nation, we need to obey those priestly laws ourselves, and we need to lead the rest of the people to do the same. Hence, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of mikvahs all over the place, because we have to start doing the same ceremonial washing procedures that priests had to do, and everybody needs to do that, because we need to be purified in this way. And let's do this, and let's do that, and let's add this. And they started to really think about how to become pure in that sense. They grew less and less interested, notice, in a prophetic future that would come because it was here now. We're the remnant, this is the end of days, and we're to be God's reign in the world to help purify Restoration then in this context truly meant becoming a perfect kind of society. They're driven to become a pure and perfect kind of society. I sense that often. I want for us to be holy. I want for us to be pure in our lives and in our thoughts before Jesus and God. These aren't bad hopes. The holiness movement that Jesus is pushing up against, the Pharisees, they have a holiness movement too. Jesus is starting a holiness movement. They're both seeking holiness. But Jesus is pushing hard against the way the Pharisees come at it. And he's, and he's rewriting a path to holiness. And it has everything to do with him. Notice the prophets told of an end of time that would be brought about by God. And that had once been the hope of the people. You're, you're looking forward for God himself to reign and to restore. But now that starts to conflict with the kind of theocracy, if you will, that's forming in Jerusalem. There's this way of governing that says we're actually reigning. And what's left then is for for, for God to just send somebody to take care of the rest of the unclean people. That's what, we, that's what the Messiah will be. Somebody who will come and get rid of all of these evildoers and Gentiles and Romans and all the unclean people that we need to be separated out from. Now, as you can imagine, within this context, I mean, the, Jew, the Jewish mindset is not homogenous. 
It's not like because you're Jewish, everybody thinks the same way. They're just like us. And so they form different communities within communities. The one I showed you was a, uh, the first two pictures were of a sect uh, called the Essenes. Then you had the Sadducees. You had Pharisees and scribes. You had different Jewish sects. And the different groups said, we know how to become holy. And they disagreed with one another. So there was some real battling going on around Jesus' day. But the one that starts to really take off as very popular is the Pharisaic tradition. My rules are the most godly, they would say. And then another group within the community would say, no, our rules are the most godly. No, our additions are the ones that bring purity the best. No, ours are. But remember, they're not just cranky legalists. They love God, and they want to see the people transformed. They just disagree with how that's going to happen. They become a community within their community that postures itself as the picture of what all of Israel needs to become. That's very interesting, isn't it? And they're different. The Essenes out in the desert, they thought the temple was totally corrupted. We need to live out in the desert. They didn't speak for very long periods of time. They, I mean, they had lots and lots of really intense rules. They said, this is, this is what all of Israel will eventually become, like us. And the Pharisees and scribes are like, no, 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 that's too intense. That's not realistic. Nobody's going to all move out to caves and the dead's too hot. They didn't say that, I don't think. But you see my point. They said, no, 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 our way is the right way to do it. And they developed the halakha, or the, the way of living, an interpretation of Torah that started to extend into every single different part of life. Because what happens when you want to follow God? You say, I want to follow God. All right, observe the Sabbath. Well, what can I do on the Sabbath? Well, we have to answer that question, and we answer it with new laws. Well, if I do this, and then that's going on, then is that still honoring God? Uh, let's talk about it. We'll debate. Yeah, that's okay. No, that, more often it was no, that's not okay. <laughs> and so they're trying their best to be this community within the community that is drawing everybody else to become that way. In this way, the Pharisees were not only 11 within, this, this is that imagery. They're like 11 within the community. It's not good enough to be that people group. They want everybody to be in the same boat. Israel was told that Pharisaism was the picture of its true goal. It was the destiny for anybody who is truly Israel. This is who you have to be if you want to be God's people. And guess what? Guess what happens in that system? People can't keep up. It doesn't fit with everybody. They can't keep up, and they continue to heap more and more burden upon them. In and of itself, your object of worship becomes the law itself. Some Jewish literature from just before the time Jesus arrives, 1st and 4th Maccabees, tells stories about Jewish people who would be starved to death before they ate pork, hundreds upon hundreds. When an evil king comes in and takes over the temple, he starts to force them to eat pig's flesh, pork, pork chops. 
and they, they literally die. One story in 4th Maccabees tells of a mom who watches her seven boys slaughtered because they refuse to break the holiness code set out for them. So they're dismembered, they're scalped, they're burned alive. It's just the most grotesque story in the world. And there's mom, and she's cheering them on. That's right. That's what the law's about. My boys went to their grave, and they didn't break that purity law. So you can imagine what happens, and this is the next bit of the text we'll read, when a man like Jesus of Nazareth comes in and he says, all foods are clean. Okay? This is a rule that the Jewish people have fought and died over. It's not just, it's not just some happy-go-lucky legalists that people are annoyed with and Jesus comes in to tell them they're wrong. This is so deeply woven into their mindset that they're willing to die over it and Jesus comes in and he says, you can actually eat pork now. That's an amazing statement. No wonder his disciples are shocked, <laughs> you know? They're amazed. They're like, how in the world could somebody who says he loves God also say all foods are clean? This is ridiculous. He has become ridiculous. Let's jump back into Mark 7. We'll listen to Jesus a little bit more. He engages with these members of this popular sect within Judaism. And they see themselves as the holiest of all people. And so here's what he says. We'll pick it up in verse 8. Having no regard for the commands of God, you're holding on to the human traditions. And then he continued. He said, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anybody who curses their father and mother, you would be put to death. But you say that if anyone can declares that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, or that means devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. And thus, and this is a key part of today's lesson, thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like this. You do a lot of this kind of stuff. What are they doing? Corbin is, this, is part of their legal halakha, their system for uh, devoting personal property to God. So I could take my, my you know, five-acre plot of land that I own, and I could say, I'm going to give this to the church. It wasn't the church, but the temple. I'm going to give this to the temple. That's a good thing. You're honoring God. You're, being, you're giving generously. This is cool. But they're under a greater commandment in the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments to honor mother and father. And that's not toddlers, uh, you need to obey the rules of the home, kind of honoring mom and dad. That's when your parents age, you need to give them your money, to put it as bluntly as I can. You need to help your aging parents financially. That's what honor your mother and father means. So they have developed a rule about giving to the temple, which is good, in which that was more important than honoring mother and father. So I have dedicated this plot of land, let's say, but now mom and dad need extra finance. I should probably pull some out of this land and give to them. No, no, you can't. 
It's more important what you've done according to our law for the temple. You're, you're not allowed now to do that. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're taking your own rule and then it trumps God's rule. And so now people are told that if they want to honor God, they have to do something that is the opposite of what God has told them to do. And so he says, that's really messed up. Don't do that. It's critical that you see the nature of these Pharisees' rules and regulations or traditions. They're not, the, Mark is not suggesting to us that ritual or tradition or rules are bad in and of themselves. We know from our ways of worship, as some of us might think in terms of liturgies, the rituals we share here, come to the communion table we'll do today, we do things religiously to craft our hearts. It's not immediately wrong to have rules and structures and systems or traditions. But they have ones that actually nullify or reverse what God is trying to do, and that's the thing that Jesus gets really upset about. We seem to have from him a lot of freedom to worship according to different structures and systems. But the thing we're always wondering is, have I become so entangled with this system that now I'm focusing on the system instead of the God that it is intending to help me worship? Does that make sense? They're using ways of regulating the people that keep them at bay. And they give biblical license to not follow God. They have verses and passages that prove their point. Similarly today, I think we have many customs and traditions in our own culture that drive men like me to think things like, if my folks end up financially hurting, that's on them. And if it's really bad, then the government, state, or federal can pick up the tab. I'm in charge of me there, and we have just a good cultural social system that works like that. And I, I, I don't even really think of honor your mother and father. I think of saving for my kids' college, not saving for what my parents will need later on. That's their responsibility. In fact, our culture has so educated me that I'm expecting them to give me money in my youth. Isn't that interesting? And with our customs then and our traditions passed down to us, I'm just talking culturally, we're actually legitimized and not following some of the most crucial core things from God. Why did he give us the Ten Commandments? To give us life. The world has taught me to look at that and say, mm, that's too old school. And Jesus says, I mean, why is he talking about this? He says, that's a great thing to keep doing. And you're stopping people from doing that. Isn't that interesting? So right there we see Jesus isn't trying to wipe out rules. He's trying to focus them on the ones that are from God, and then he's trying to bring life to people. I think as pastors and elders here, we have, we have looked at our own church here at Central Bible, and I think this is a good opportunity to bring up what we've been working on for a year and a half. We have wanted to look at the way that we minister and revisit the things that we're doing and just simply ask the question, is there anything that we're doing that has sort of come to pass over time that actually 
keeps people from following God, that actually nullifies the command of God or actually inhibits growth in Jesus. It's not a shame time and it's not a blame time. It has been a time for us to go back and very honestly revisit. Are there some things that we need to change to bring ourselves back to that heart after God and into alignment with, with, with what Jesus says here. We want our hearts to be close to him, not far from him. So wanting to keep as many of our good traditions intact, we still have noticed a few that need attention. We found a few significant mistakes, and I've been talking about this for a while. Today, I'm very happy to say that as you leave, on the four tables in the back are our most updated and refined governing, if you would say, or grounding documents for our church. And they reflect a long project of looking at the way we operate and saying, let's get back to a basic love for Christ and for others, and let's have that be reflected through our documents. So we've whittled them way down, and here's one of the big things we had to change. Our tradition, like many evangelical churches in the States and beyond, have taken on a, a way of living where, where we believe that we should look at certain non-gospel beliefs or practices that we hold, ones that make us separate or different from the rest of Jesus' community, and then develop an identity around those. Nobody sets out maliciously to do this. We just kind of learned this. How do you think baptism is supposed to happen? Should it be sprinkling or immersion? How do you think that communion should be taken? Is it this way or is it that way? How do you believe the end times will play out? What's your position on this? What's your position on that? In many churches all around the country are right now, I believe, as a movement of the Spirit of God throughout his church, are coming back to those things and saying, was Jesus always teaching us to find how we're different and break off from one another? Or was he teaching us to find that we're one in him and to unite together? And we think that that's a better way to look at it. So what we wanted to do was change, for instance, and the most foundational change that we're wanting to make is stepping out of those highly detailed doctrinal statements and moving toward a basic statement of faith in Christ and then saying the Bible is our doctrinal statement. We say, well, it's too complex. I prefer a list of summary statements from scholars. And we're saying it is complex, and let's be okay with that. Let's live in the tension together and learn to love one another in our differences because we know we're united in the one life of Jesus. This is a huge change for our church, and it's beautiful. And again, it's not because of blaming others or shaming. It's just listening to the Bible and continuing as we proceed to be reformed by it. I'm thankful that we've done the work to get to this place. I want you to take a copy home as you leave uh, and read through it. And then for those of you who are members, we will have a vote on the 30th of April, the last Sunday of this month where I hope that we will establish those as a new way to roll. And I think that you'll see that heart opening toward others that's uh, not because it's written on a piece of paper, but it's all of us changing our mindset together. Getting serious 
about what it is that Jesus is most interested in and then what it is that's secondary and what's less important. I think these are some really good changes and I speak on behalf of all of the elders and pastors as well. We've been working at it a long time. Jesus comes in and he shocks these guys. Jesus' opposers thought of themselves as the ones who were the reign of God. All we need left is a Messiah who's strong enough to take out Rome and the rest of the evildoers. And Jesus comes in and he says, you're not the reign of God, and the end time starts now with me. It didn't start with your return from exile, I'm sorry to say. That prophesied time of the end of God's story that you heard about through Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi and the prophets and all of them, all that they were talking about in terms of end time restoration begins now with me. I'm Jesus. This is Mark revealing to us the character of Jesus. What is he doing? Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand now. Not through, not back then. And the reign of God is seen in me, which is why I can say now all foods are clean. Because I am standing in the place of God's dedicated spokesman, if you will. That's where Jesus is, is, is right now. We have the luxury of looking back. We know that he's God himself in the flesh. But that's why he can do that. He's not coming in and saying, oh gosh, I can't believe that got into Leviticus. <laughs> Never should have been there. You could have been eating pork this whole time. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that served a great purpose then. It did what it was supposed to do then, but it was pointing to what's happening now. And this is the end of time, and I am your God, and you need to be with me, and I'm gonna expand the horizons of religion beyond what you have expected. We will eat BLTs. We will include the unclean people from Gennesaret. Even I will go into a demon-possessed tomb where it is just unclean to the max, and I will bring light and hope and cleanliness everywhere that he goes. Jesus is trying to draw them onto him. And so that is outside of their framework. There's, it just doesn't compute. And they say, how could that possibly be a guy who loves God? I'm here to include the unclean things, says Jesus, not to destroy them. What? You're supposed to destroy them. I'm here to love that which has been forsaken, he says. They say, what? You're supposed to destroy the forsaken. I'm here to reign forever in my system of law. Jesus does have one, does he not? And it's good. And it's a light yoke. But he says, teach people to obey my commands. Not teach people to just do whatever. <laughs> he says, teach them to obey my law, my commands. But these are amazing and I'm redoing them and I'm expanding them and I'm gonna drive it right into the heart which is the place where we have an issue. You're stoked and patting yourselves on the back because you haven't murdered anybody and I'm telling you, I mean, I'm jumping into a different text altogether here, but I'm telling you that hating people is what I've always been trying to get at. I'm gonna expand, he expands it. And the people get upset. My system of law aims at the foundation of your thinking and action, 
your heart. And Jesus, I think, would say, as my reign gets established, you need to see that the real life I'm coming to offer to you doesn't come through physical foods. It doesn't come through your practices. It starts in the heart. So pick it up in verse 14. Again, Jesus calls the crowd to himself. And he said, listen to me. Everyone, listen to me and understand what I'm telling you. Nothing outside of a person can defile that person by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And after he left the crowd and he entered the house, his disciples asked him about the parable. They're freaking out. They know the stories of people who have died for these laws. They say, what in the world are you talking about? He says, verse 18, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? You eat food, he says. It doesn't go into your heart. It goes into your stomach. And then it goes out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared that all foods were clean. And then he went on. For what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside, and these are what defiles a person. Clothing, religious habits, rituals, even good Torah-abiding regulations were part of their worship system. And like all systems that get mixed with broken people, they're liable to being fatally entangled, if you will, in the system themselves. We are broken people, systems intended for good when we mix we can mess things up a lot. And the biggest risk is losing the voice of God himself and now just focusing on the regulation. Systems give a sense of having closed the deal. And we had these issues. Now we have a system and a law that settles it. We're good. And yet it's just a false sense. The right order has been established by us, not by them, by us. We're the ones that are the pure, the true I think this is why Jesus is running around curing people on the Sabbath, and there's a big problem with that. Some saw his miracles and they said, wow, this is that ultimate climactic moment in history that we've been waiting for. These miraculous cures are literally launching salvation right in front of our eyes. I think the disciples slowly but surely are coming to that. In Matthew 12, they look at it and they say, the reign of God is upon you. It has overtaken you. They recognize rightly. But it took an overconfident, scribal, pharisaical elitist to come in and interpret that miracle where Jesus heals on the Sabbath to look at that and say, that's an infraction of the law. This dude cannot be honoring God. It's not possible. That's great logic, isn't it? There's no way that this is God acting. We know it. He's not following our rules. That's interesting. And Jesus is saying, you're too bound to the system itself. You aren't seeing the purpose. And so it has become something that prevents flourishing of life. I came to give life. Your system prevents it. 
I'm here to give life. God has always wanted to give life to his people. Humankind, his or her freedom to live the abundant life. This is why Sabbath was created, not the other way around. I'm saying this passage to let you see Jesus' heart toward us, and that's the main issue. The religious elite were claiming that God could be counted on to operate within the confines of their system, within the confines of their rules. If, every, if you're doing these, then God has power. They had substituted the efforts of human ingenuity for the ways of God. They had no need to listen to God for guidance because they had it solved. It was a closed set. We don't need to listen anymore. We've got the law. This is Islam. Allah is not interested in revealing himself then or now or in any ongoing way. You've got the law. Follow it. That's it. Now we just do stuff. That was what they were missing. We don't want to miss that. They depended on listening to their clever arguments and debates and their fine-spun niceties, if you will. They spent a lot of time with the big-time scholarly types who could tell them which one was the winning argument and which position was correct. They were interested in those questions. What's your position on this? If it was this, then you're part of the Sadducees. If it's that, you should go out to the desert with those guys. You're not one of the pure ones like us. And here's the closer. I think that Jesus, in this text, he brings up for us, he's teaching us that God can be counted on to act in expansive and new ways that we may not expect, that just don't fit in the way we think things are supposed to be. Jesus challenges, I think, every social and religious boundary he comes into contact with except for what we read earlier, love God and love your neighbor. And he doesn't let us define that love either. We have to read the New Testament to know what he means when he says to love God and love neighbor. Anytime that our system prevents human well-being from coming to pass, anytime that it prevents people from honoring God and loving one another, we have to back up, we have to eradicate it immediately and then turn our face to Jesus. It's beautiful because we do so and we're turning our face toward a life giver. He's always interested in giving us life. It's hard to think that when you're thinking about rules and regulations, isn't it? But he's always helping us to come into life with him. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you and we love your life and we're celebrating that on Palm Sunday. We're celebrating it especially next Sunday for Easter. We think about this great victory that you have won over sin and death. We think about this incredible teaching that you bring, which is, which is a, it's a statement of these end of time days where you are truly establishing your reign. And I ask on behalf of all of the women and the men and the children in this room, I ask that you would help us to become people who understand ourselves as living in your end of days, living with you as our king, seeking you for guidance, developing our liturgies and our rituals and our customs all around the purpose of bringing shalom to our people in this world. And God, help us through your spirit to never make the mistake of thinking that we're here to reign for you. 
or that we have some kind of perfected purity because of our own wisdom. Instead, let us be always bent in our knees toward you. Help us to always be bowed before you. Help us to always be living for you alone, Jesus. We love you and we trust you. Amen.